Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Impact Code, where we take deep dives into the stories and journeys of impact in the lives of our guests. Boy, do we have an absolute treat for you today. My guest today is Mary Bulland. And Mary is someone whose name really has become synonymous uh, with excellence in nursing. And she has just been a powerhouse in that field for quite some time. Her list of accomplishments goes on and on and on. She's highly respected in Hawaii. She's highly highly respected in the States. She's highly respected globally. So having her here on the podcast today is an absolute tremendous honor. Most recently, she served as the Dean and Professor of the Nancy Atmospera Walsh School of Nursing, which is at University of Hawaii in Honolulu. And she was there from 2005 to 2021. And she really led that school to become a lever for local and global social change. So not only did she help create and build this program that is now just an absolute powerhouse of a nursing program, she helped connect it to local government and to, to really make social and societal change, which is really, really powerful. I'm so excited to be able to share this podcast with you today because I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with Mary just as much as I did. Before we jump in today, I want to take a quick moment to thank Tower Community Bank. Tower Community Bank sponsors this podcast and really is the whole reason that this podcast exists. One of the things that Tower is really passionate about doing is making our communities better places to live, work, and raise a family. When we see this podcast as a way to not only expand what the idea of community is, so we're making our community larger by hosting this podcast and by putting this podcast on, but also truly making the places that we're reaching better by elevating the stories of people who are doing great work and having great impacts within those communities. So this podcast is a is an absolute win for Tower. And if it's something that you're enjoying, it would mean the world to us if you would go to towercommunitybank.com, check us out. Check out the accounts that we're offering there. Check out uh, the different things that we're doing as a bank. And if you see something that you need, sign up. It's a great way to support this podcast if you are enjoying it. So head on over to towercommunitybank.com today. And now without further ado, my conversation with Mary Boland. Mary, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to get to welcome you to the Impact Code. Brett, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I am too. I think a great place for us to start today is to talk about the beginning of your career. And from what I've read and from what Barry has has told me who introduced us is that you've had a, a very long and successful career in the nursing field. And I'd love to start by talking about where did your passion for nursing start? Well, that's a, that's a great question. When I came of age, which is going back a really long time now, but if you were a woman girl, you really options were very limited. So, and came from an immigrant Irish Catholic family. So you can pretty much guess what they were. You got to be a nun, which I had no interest in, (laughs) Um, a teacher um, or a secretary. And none of those appealed to me. And then nursing was the last one. And um, I took a chance on it. And I really found my passion after I graduated and after I had some experience working because I 
learned about myself and what I liked and what I enjoyed and where I felt like I, I contributed in a positive way. Uh, so it took a little while for me to find my place in nursing, which is the beauty of nursing. When I talk with students, I really try to make uh, put that point across that you start off in one place, but throughout your life, you can grow and develop and move. And there's just so many opportunities for you. Uh, that students necessarily don't think about when they enter. They think, oh, I'm going to work in the hospital and there's lots of blood and guts and it'll be great. And that is true. But mm. about only about 60% of nurses work in the hospitals oh, wow. and it's going down every year. So there's lots more options for you out there. Wow, that's really incredible. So did you start your first nursing role in a hospital or were you somewhere else when you started your nursing career? Yeah, I know. Like many people, I started in a hospital because in those days, the options were not as broad as they are today for a young graduate. Um, I enjoyed children. So I worked at a children's hospital in Philadelphia for a couple of years. And during that time, I found out that I really enjoyed learning, mm. which was something that nursing school it was getting through. Right. But once I was out in the field, there was just so much happening and so much change from the science growing, et cetera, that I found I just really enjoyed learning. And so I decided then to get a bachelor's degree. I had a diploma and um, then went to working in an adult setting while I was getting my bachelor's at UPenn. Uh, and then from there went into teaching and then, you know, realized I wanted a master's. <laughs> and in between there, um, my husband and I married and we moved up to northern New Jersey and settled. Uh, so I did a master's degree and a nurse practitioner um, certificate in PEDS up there as well. Uh, and then I went to work at a children's hospital there and my career blossomed. Mm. I was fortunate to be amongst a group of amazing people, great mentors, uh, people who really enjoyed learning and had a passion for what they did and really communicated that to others. Mm. That's a really beautiful thing when you can find a group that is, it seems like everyone's in their wheelhouse and they're really enjoying the thing that they're doing. Throughout those first several roles, did you feel like you were on the right path or did you feel like you were still searching to try to find your place in the nursing world? Uh, no, I felt like I was on the right path, uh, again, because there are options. But at one point, I thought I would get an MBA mm. because I knew health was transforming. It was going to be much more businesslike. And so I enrolled in the first course in an MBA program, which was called the business process. And I lasted through <laughs> two classes because <laughs> it was so much like the nursing process. It was like, I can't do this again. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't finish the course. And so that was the end of my formal foray into the business world. Um, and then really found this job at Children's Hospital in Newark that just spoke to everything. Um, I love doing clinical work. I really enjoyed the learning and the teaching and then being on the forefront where re research was happening. And I went to work for um, two physicians. One did allergy immunology, one did pulmonary, and the common point was asthma, mm. but they managed asthma completely differently. So in that experience, I learned um, how to work with people um, and get consensus when there was all, you know, not always agreement, right? 
Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So especially in those fields where there is a lot of expertise and the expertise can sometimes feel like it's maybe competing. How do you find consensus or build consensus in those situations? Uh, yeah, there, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. Um, I think it, it's always, always about um, really listening to people. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of people listen, but they don't necessarily hear. And it's not intentional. They're listening with all good intent, but they really aren't able to put themselves in the place of that person that's talking to them and understand the dynamics that are um, leading to their position, if you will. And if I found if you're able to do that, if you can see the value in every individual, you can generally find that sweet spot. It may not be everything you want or they want, but if you really maintain relationships with people, you can ultimately uh, achieve that in most settings. There are some settings where it's not possible. And then you have to look inside yourself and decide, is this the best fit for me? Because I have to have my needs met as well. Yeah, that's really well said. Do you think that that's something that... That is sort of naturally born into people, or do you think that's something that is just developed over time, sort of an increasing, I guess, iterations as you sort of learn and grow? It's unpopular, but I would say people come with it, that it's a temperament piece. You can mature it, nurture it, grow it, but lacking that, I don't believe people, if you don't have empathy going into whatever work you do, it's going to be very hard for you to become a, if you will, a servant leader Mm. or a leader who can um, really identify possibility, have vision, and then engage others to follow along with you. Mm. Very well said. Empathy has been something that has come up in, I would say out of the last four podcasts that I did, at least three of the last four, empathy has been something that we've talked quite a lot about, which I find really interesting that it's sort of been a a common theme. Can you talk about how that has helped your career, how practicing empathy has, has maybe allowed you to see things that other people may have missed or allowed you to find opportunities to build and collaborate in new ways? That's that's a tough question to answer, Brett. I'm not sure I have a good answer for it. It's so innate um, to have empathy. Um, it causes problems sometimes because you really are able to see beyond mm-hmm. what the average person sees. I had to learn that over time that I could articulate what I was seeing, but others couldn't necessarily see it. And I had to Mm. pull back um, and wait, which is, I think, very hard for people who are um, leaders or enjoy leading. That really um, impatience that makes you a great leader also requires that you have to sit on your hands sometimes. um, And that doesn't come natural. Yeah. So um, it's been an, I I would say it's an interesting journey maintaining and maturing and evolving your empathy. Um, And the hardest part sometimes is getting to the place where uh, you have to accept something that you're not um, 
you don't feel is right to be really candid yeah. with you, right? Yeah. Or you take one for the team. I think that that's very difficult um, when you're able to see different perspectives um, on an issue. And that was one of the things that took me a long time. I'm not sure I've still learned it, but it's taken me a long time. But it also means that you don't accept the status quo, yeah. right? Yeah. These are setbacks. And so, okay, you, you saw this happen. You know where you want to go. Now I need a different path, I need a different approach or a different time frame or a different skill or a different group, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's fascinating too, because you're probably the first person I've heard because there's so much talk about empathy right now. You're the first person that has really mentioned sort of, I don't, I don't think I'd call it the dark side of empathy, but really that it, that it is a very positive thing and that it can allow really positive things to happen in the workplace, in your career, in life, but that it also unchecked and unbalanced um, might be a hindrance in certain scenarios. There may be things that you're seeing so, from such an empathetic perspective that it's hard to become objective. And so it's really interesting that you brought up sort of that flip dynamic. And I think it will be really valuable to people that are tuning in today in school. Great. I hope it's helpful. Yeah. It's helpful for me. I'll tell you that. So, so we've got at least one. So you're, you're very passionate leader and I can tell already just in, in these first few minutes of our conversation, that's, that's something that means a tremendous amount to you. When was your first role, um, sort of taking on a, a leadership component? Uh, well, you, you'll laugh at this, but I'm the oldest of five. And <laughs> I am too, actually. That's funny. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the other four are brothers. Okay. <laughs> so um, I've been told that from a very early age, um, I was into leading and guiding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> only later in life, I think, has it been appreciated. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it didn't um, emerge, interestingly, in my academic career. Uh, I believe that if... Someone looked back at me, say, when I was getting my bachelor's or maybe even my master's in school in my early days, you would not say, oh, this person is going to go far. I need to invest in this person. Mm. I was relatively quiet because I was listening a lot of the time. Um, And then people started to say to me, well, you don't speak a lot, but when you do, you really say something. Mm. And that then helped me to realize that if I was at a table, I was there for a reason and it was important to contribute. Um, and there was a story of how that was really brought home to me in, in a, um, I guess in a dramatic way. I was starting when I was in, in Newark. We, we, the group I worked with, the physician, was one of the first people in the country to identify pediatric AIDS. Mm. And but I was, he was the one I had started working with. Um, it was our allergy immunology kids who were presenting with strange symptoms. Anyway, so then he was trying to convince people. He published, et cetera. I was the nurse working with him. And I thought, well, I could write an article, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and I did. And then out of that, people started to contact me. It got published in a, in a journal, a nursing journal. And I was invited to the CDC down to Atlanta. Wow. Um, I was probably, 
gosh, I don't know, I'm going to say 34, relatively young, and at a table with these people that were just legends and names, right? Yeah. Just to be at the CDC. And so for the first day, I was just like in awe, didn't open my mouth. <laughs> and at the end of it, um, it was a physician, she was the person who was moderating this, came up to me and, and said, Mary, we invited you here because we know you have things to say. I'd really love to hear your voice tomorrow. And wow. I think having been an Irish Catholic person, you know, came out of the children are seen but not heard generation. It was, oh, okay. And that was the aha. And then yeah. from there on, I have to shut up. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hesitate. I realize that, you know, if I, you know, if I'm there, then I have a responsibility to contribute really. Another way of using your Catholic guilt, I will say. <laughs> for the, um, for the good. For the good. For the good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Wow. And that it's so incredible. I think when people are able to speak into our lives in a way that has such a tremendous impact so immediately. And that sounds like one for you where it was really a paradigm shift in how you thought about your contribution and the things that you could bring to groups going forward. So that's really powerful moment in your life. No. And then I think another one that I, I, was really the probably the most powerful when all of this was starting and there were increasing demands, if you will, on my time. I was young. I had a daughter who was um, just born. A year later, I was or two years later, I was pregnant with my second daughter, mm-hmm. and it's a lot to yeah. be. You know, and my husband is a was what wonderful person, but there was a point where I asked him, and we had a conversation because I essentially said. I'm committed to my family. I really enjoy my children. They're, you know, I just love being around them. Yeah. But I also have this opportunity here. And his response, which he said then many, many times over the years to me was, your work is important. Mm. It's really important work. And he uh, was an artist, a commercial artist. And he said, what I do is nice, but what you do makes a difference. Mm. And that was sort of the, decision we made then, all right, I'm just, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to see where it takes us, not just me, but us as a family. And at times when I would be worn out or just like, oh, this is just too hard. It's gotten too political, whatever the problem was, he would always remind me and say, remember, you're doing something important, Mary, (laughs) you know, you'll get through. Uh, And that is huge to have that kind of support from a spouse or a partner. I feel I was very blessed to have that. Yeah. I'd say that can that can make all the difference in the world and where your career and and where your life ultimately takes you is how that person chooses to support or not. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. in your case, you had someone who could help center you in the times when you maybe felt off center or where you, you didn't know where that next step was and maybe feeling pulled in different directions. That's a gift. Right. And he cooked dinner every night, which was really good. Oh, that's <laughs> he awesome. realized if he wanted to eat, he needed to do the cooking. So he learned to do that. And, you know, we really muddled our way through life like any couple does yeah. and our children as well. But, I, you know, I'll always be thankful for him for that support. Yeah, that's really special. How, so as being, uh, I think, a parent of any 
of any sort in any career is, is difficult. It's difficult to balance the idea of, you know, how much time to, to put into my career versus how much time to sort of attend to the kids and be there. How did you find, um, I don't think balance is the right word, but how did you find some sort of weight that you felt content with between those two priorities? Cause they're both really big. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about finding structure for yourself, creating that structure. Um, You know, people would say to me, oh, you know, you're getting so popular and you're being asked to do this and that. And I would be, yeah. And I go home at night and I change diapers. (laughs) Right. That helps keep me centered. Um, Again, my husband had a rule like you got to be home by 630. That's it. You know, I'm not going to be happy if you're later than that. Uh, And when I would travel, uh, particularly when the children were young, it would be one overnight, two at the most. So I turned down opportunities, sure, but it was worth it. And now that I'm older, you know, have a really deeper appreciation for that time with your children and your husband. Uh, It doesn't come around again, whereas work. There's always work. Society will always need what we can contribute. Um, but our family and those moments with them won't be there. Mm-hmm. And then because I, I think also the group I worked with was very family centered. And, you know, we would bring our kids into work with us. And so they could see what we were doing. It wasn't abstract to them. Traveling, if there was a conference I was invited to speak to, um, they would come with me as well. And so the I hope at least they saw the work and the life being integrated as opposed to being compartmentalized. Yeah. I think that's really important too. And it's as a parent, that's something that sometimes I struggle with is wanting, I have a tendency more to compartmentalize than to integrate. And I think that's a really important distinguishment that you just made that can make a really big difference in how your kids see you in the workplace, how they see themselves as they're growing up and finding their own sort of career or or their own place in the world. So uh, I'm really glad you make that distinction because that's something that I think I need to continue to work on myself. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to be um, a young parent. It's there's actually some research that, that will tell you that those first Mm -hmm. five years or even when marriages are um, the most fragile, if you will, because the demands physically, emotionally, financially are just so tough. It's exhausting. Yeah. You're feeling it. Yeah exhausting that's right um but it is worth it if you hang in there yeah yeah well i feel like we're we're getting close so i've got a six-year-old daughter and i've got a three-year-old son so we're to the point now where we're there's like kind of light at the end of a tunnel and we're like you know there's a few nights a week where maybe we even get to sleep through the night uninterrupted and and things like that (laughs) so there's some hope some days yeah (laughs) yeah But it is also one of the most rewarding things in the world, I think, is seeing your kids start to like develop their own place in the world. And it's not really anything that I'm doing. It's just they're they're like finding their thing, you know, and it's really cool to see that happening. Yeah, we're really their guides. And um, when when I would work clinically and parents would feel responsible for something untoward that had happened to a child, it was, you know, I would always try to assure them that you're guiding them, you're there to facilitate them, but they come with their own temperament, with their own package, if you will. And if you can identify it and work with it rather than putting them in a mold, everyone will be much happier. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Great way to put it. 
So you've got the CDC panel, you're being a part of it. The the second day, did you speak up more? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so right away you started taking that that advice and and how did that change things? How did that change the outcome of that for you? I think I I mean it helped me to realize that it was not enough to just do the work. I don't know if I can articulate that well for you, but always feel that the work is what's important, right? Mm -hmm. In nursing, for example, whatever you do, we always say, well, if you don't document it, you haven't done it, right? Mm -hmm. So I always thought of it that way, but I never thought about the other piece, which is you have to share, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to, people will call it marketing now, but you have to let people know what you've done because the world is a competitive place. Everyone's yeah. jockeying for position. Uh, and if that doesn't come naturally to you, then it is really a skill set that you have to build. Uh, and that's what happened with me. I really, and I'm still to this day, not competitive with people. Yeah. I like to, to do my best, but I'm not, I don't have to be first. I, I'm more interested in what the impact is that I'm able to help bring about. Um, so that piece, I think a lot of professions um, don't have. I think business people probably do the best at it because you come into a really competitive world yeah. and lawyers and maybe physicians to some degree. But other than that, um, most people really don't appreciate the fact that if, if people don't know what you're doing um, or what you think, then you're not really doing it. Mm -hmm. And so... I think I came of age at a much earlier time. Now I think maybe we've gone to the extreme with social media and, you know, you're watching what people eat and, you know, <laughs> what you wore today and how you put your makeup on. And so there may be a, a balance in there somewhere, right? Yeah, um, there usually is. We usually, we usually, I, I always feel like societally, we, we tend to swing on a pendulum and we're almost always in one of the extremes. And it's really hard not to be. So for me right now with social media, I've I've been at the point where I'm almost like I don't want to be on it at all just because there's a there's just a lot of noise and it it tends to be something that becomes a stressor for me. So think thinking of the pendulum, instead of being on social media all the time, now I'm I'm swinging the opposite way and I'm like, I don't want to be on it at all. And so I think that's yeah. sort of how we tend to to operate. And the people who are on it is it's like everything goes onto social media and it becomes a bit mm -hmm. overwhelming. At times, right? At times, yeah. that's, that's for sure. I I think back to I had a boss early on in my career who um, I grew up, you know, very um, I would say like very conservative Christian family, and so I didn't necessarily learn to I learned humility to the degree that I didn't know how to advocate for myself and how to share the wins that I was having in the workplace with the people who needed to know those in order for my career to progress, and so. Mm -hmm. I, I feel fortunate that one of my first mentors in business came to me one day and he's like, what have you been working on? And I showed him some of the stuff and he's like, how have I not seen this stuff yet? This is awesome. It's making such a difference. He's like, you need to go and you need to show this to... It was one of the more senior leaders in our organization. And he sort of made that introduction. And after that, he came, he circled back and he's like, Brett, you've got to never be afraid to share the good things that you're doing because there are other people that can benefit from those same types of changes that you're thinking about making. And that 
stuck and that hit different. It's still a challenge for me though. It's still a challenge for me to feel not guilty about sharing those things because there's there's just that part of me that I think was growing up had that desire. Yeah. So was this the point in your career where you started to take on more speaking engage, engagements, started to um, really find your footing um, as a leader, not just in your own organization, but sort of across across the country? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, because our program grew being one of the first in the country, right? And um, took a while before people were willing to even accept that children could get HIV. Mm. And then... Um, uh, funding opportunities came in and then I discovered talents I didn't know I have. Turned out I write real, really well. <laughs> I just did never realize that. And yeah. so people would say, you know, write, write a grant and I would write a grant and it would get funded. And wow. uh, first time I went down to Congress to testify, um, Pat Moynihan was the chair of the committee. And, but I was speaking on behalf of the Association of Children's Hospitals nationally. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, you know, we'll help you with your testimony. I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I can do it. I'm self-sufficient. <laughs> I wrote my testimony. Uh, and it went well. And, and actually, at the end of the hearing, he and a couple of other people came down and talked to us, mm. which I learned subsequently is really unusual. Yeah. It's never happened to me again, actually. Uh, and then I learned subsequently that organizations tend to at least frame, if not write, testimony for people who go to speak before these kinds of panels. Wow. Uh, so I think all those different experiences coming together um, made a huge difference for me. It was just a wonderful opportunity to grow and mature. And there were lots of nurses around that time um, that I interacted with. And going forward, some of them, I will say, just kind of dropped off. And so there is a piece about understanding opportunity and you know there's that saying that what opportunity is preparation and good luck right Mm -hmm. but that we're had it but somehow just didn't appreciate it or didn't mobilize it or use it um and there were only quite a small number of us that you would if you said their names today in our field people would recognize them Um, yeah so that probably again reflected on who I was, but also the the team I was with, um, who didn't limit me, who didn't see me, oh, you're the nurse. And I think so many nurses struggle with that, where people just say to them, okay, this is is what you do, stay in your lane. Um, The doc I worked with at one point, I'm telling you lots of stories. I love it. Please uh, continue. (laughs) There was a transition. um, And so I had a lot of grants and we were moving to another organization, a medical school, and that also had a nursing school. And so the guy worked with um, went in and said, you know, this is going to you and this is going to Mary in the nursing school. And the guy said, no, those are all yours. And he he really stood up for me. And wow. I, I, that I learned the importance, right, of advocating, too, mm-hmm. because he could have easily said, oh, OK, I'll tell her, you know, but he he didn't. He said, no, this is her work and it stands on its own. So he was not hierarchical or he didn't define people by their roles. Mm-hmm. And I think from him, I just learned a tremendous amount around that advocacy piece and then around how do you lead when you have to manage people? Yeah, because you don't 
as much as you can give people the chance to succeed, sometimes it, it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And the conversation has to take place with individuals. And he had a way of doing that, that <laughs> sometimes if he was firing somebody, when they left him, they gave him a hug. Wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because he, he was able to frame it and depersonalize it and leave them with their ego intact. Wow. And so I learned that from him because I don't, I don't think it was naturally, um, certainly in me or in many people, it's like, okay, you screwed up out, right? Yeah. You try to make it soft, but you're out. Yeah. Um, but the idea of fit, of supporting you, of try, you know, initially trying to give you every chance to be successful so that if you really do then have to make that hard decision on someone, you can do it um, with compassion and, and with empathy for them. Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. And you do it quickly. You don't spend 20 minutes telling them that's the other thing you learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, right? It's, it's bad news no matter how you try to frame it. So you, you just have to put it out there and um, you know, hope for the best with it. Yeah. I remember I had someone early in my career who was just not not great. So I learned almost the opposite way, just experiencing sort of the negative feedback in it. I remember he would always like start out really, really like casual conversation, but I knew something, he had some sort of like negative feedback that he was going to give me or some sort of opportunity that he wanted me to work on. But he'd always started off with like a nice casual conversation that felt awkward and I could tell he was nervous. Then he would give me the feedback and then he'd like kind of sandwich it together with more positive. And I always would just leave feeling so (laughs) frustrated. (laughs) Like you could just tell me instead of like, belaboring it and drawing it out like just i i'm a you know i'm a tough person i i want to hear the stuff i need to work on so that i can continue to improve right and i think sometimes right. we underestimate people's ability to sort of take feedback and and run with it if we can be honest and empathetic and compassionate too yeah. but yeah. but not dance around the truth as well yeah yeah but that is a technique that is taught to administrators <laughs> Yes, I know that's right. like the the feedback sandwich yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah, but I think if you know, you have to make that effort to know the person, right? That's because right. Because I think most people are able and want to know, yeah. right? And then the ones that don't take it or get horribly defensive um, and then um, lose their way, then that tells you something too, right? Yeah. Um, but every organization has its dynamic and based on the different type of leader in organization, you also are going to have, or just unconsciously you're biased to bring in people who think like you, right? Yeah. Particularly in the, in the command and control style, which fortunately I think is going away more and more, but certainly when you look at some of the tech leaders today, uh, it's very obvious that that is how they manage. Um, but at the end of the day, there is so much money to be made that that worked for them, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but in in some of the other industries, maybe banking is like that too. From talking to Barry, mm-hmm. I get that sense that um, the approach that the community bank uses is much more integrative and values people as individuals, gets to know them as individuals, gives them the support to be successful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And that's, and I also, you know, transparently, I, I think Barry's very good at that as well, just naturally. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up here at Tower was just my relationship with him and my respect for him as a person. 
uh, just gave me enough trust to know that wherever he would put me in the organization, that there would also be the challenge and the support that I needed to stay interested and to stay sort of committed over the over the long term. So, yeah, I think it's it's an art finding the balance in those two things and and not being too strong, but also uh, and and unempathetic, but also then not being almost lacking structure because you have so much, so much empathy that there's no real vision or push towards anything. Um, no real mm-hmm. demand on anyone, no real challenge. And both of those things can lead to, I think, atrophy of people's minds and the, the direction of the company feeling sort of monotonous. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to be here. I'll say that. <laughs> so as, as your career is progressing is this is an interesting thing that I, I I'm just, curious about was there a moment when you sort of felt like you had I want to say the term made it was there was there a time when you were like this is how I envisioned my career or have you always sort of been focused on the work still to do yeah um I think that there was a moment, um, probably 15, uh, 15, 17 years ago, um, that um, time, if you will, where you were making a dramatic difference, right, in terms of HIV, mm-hmm. understanding it, treating it, uh, giving supports to families and communities to decrease stigma, et cetera. Once antiretrovirals entered and mm-hmm. we were able to stop transmission or interrupt it when women took it and there was treatment for the kids, then there was a moment of, all right, um, it's going to definitely be different. And I, by that point, I realized that my strength was in development. It wasn't in mm-hmm. the day to day, if you will, execution of things. And it, um, came about just as my youngest daughter left for college and was sort of thinking about it. Um, I was in my early fifties and this opportunity presented itself to pay it forward, if you will, in terms of this deanship at the university of Hawaii. Yeah. So it was not someone who, you know, ticked all the boxes to get to the Dean job and then interviewed for 20 jobs and all that was really, um, I felt like what I had done in um, Newark and New Jersey was sufficient, but I still wanted to contribute and I needed to throw the cards up in the air at the same time. Fortunately, again, my husband was working electronically, didn't matter where he was. Mm And he was game. He had never liked, uh, wasn't from the East Coast. And so it was like, well, what about California or Hawaii? And um, put my name in for the job, got the interview. I went out, fell in love with the school, the university. I could see the potential that was untapped. And I knew I could make a difference there. Um, mm. How long, I didn't know. And But that was then the moment where I really was paying, starting to pay it forward. Mm. You know, what can I do for this next generation of people coming up? Healthcare is just being transformed both by science, but also um, by the finances, by what we're calling, um, you know, payment transformation, Obamacare, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I ensure that the next generation of nurses um, have the skill set to seize opportunities when they're available to them. 
And yeah. so that was essentially um, what stimulated me and then finding the right place. And then the culture is important. I, I told you I'm not a particularly outspoken or um, extroverted person. Um, I like to get to know people. And the culture in Hawaii is, is very much like that. It's mm. a, I would call it a soft culture. It doesn't mean things don't get accomplished or people don't have strong feelings, but there is that respect um, for individuals, for the elderly, for education. And the, so the fit was there for me. And so a few years turned into, you know, 16 years and wow. COVID came along and, you know, added to it. There's, there's a lot that I want to ask you about from, from this little section. And I want to start by specifically talking about your role in the development of new HIV treatment. So this wasn't something that I'm overly familiar with from your career perspective. And I'd love to hear more sort of what your role was in the development of new treatment methods for HIV and sort of how we think about HIV treatment. Yeah, my role was in many ways supportive. We had a program that I had built um, because being a nurse, I think holistically, and we realized once kids were infected, so was their mothers, even though they were asymptomatic, right? Yeah. And parents or, or partners um, of the mothers. And there was very little available for them as service. Mm. And they were dealing with huge amounts of stigma, couldn't talk to their families, et cetera, because yeah. it was either gay or, or drugs or sex, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and so we had put together this comprehensive, what we call child-centered family-focused program, um, where our team, unfortunately, we got the funds to do this, but we had, you know, not only nurses and doctors, but social workers, psychologists. Um, and then we saw our kids, um, regardless of setting. Uh, so there was no siloing. This happens to you in the hospital. This happens to you out. This happens to you when you try to go to school. We really were all in with them. And um, it helped us build relationships. And then um, the physician I worked with, again, was a, a bright thinker. AZT had come out and had this idea of, gee, what if we could interrupt transmission? So the mother's infected, but the baby doesn't have to get it. Yeah. Right. And they were working with NIH at that point, And the clinical trial was developed called the 076 trial. It happened all over the country. Um, and they started using AZT. And the results were so dramatic that they actually stopped the trial. They didn't even finish it. Wow. Then the role I had was, okay, we know we've got something that works. How do we get it out there? How do we get people, um, health departments, um, insurers, et cetera, to fund this? Yeah. Right. So get a lot of the marketing, um, getting the message out there, because remember, um, pediatric HIV, for the most part, was children of color, underserved communities, poverty, yeah. violence, drugs, not a group that people were naturally sympathetic to yeah. until they often heard their stories. Yep. Uh, and so making sure that we addressed equity and that once these treatments came about, they were going to be accessible to them, right? They weren't yes. the people who just enrolled in the trials too much history in healthcare about that happening right. and then Correct. never get the benefit. Right. Um, so I think we 
looked at what it, what it was that we could do. And then um, the federal government funded me to set up a national resource center where we could do just that. As programs started around the country, then we provided tech, what we call technical assistance, you know, essentially telling our story, helping them to understand components they needed, how to document, how to report, how to build that community support. Uh, and that was a lot of fun to do. Again, that was something brand new. And I moved away from actual clinical care at that point and um, then got into grant writing and trying to bring in more resources. Uh, and then we were approached um, to do this internationally. And oh, wow. we started in a small way. Um, we felt that unless you saw a program, we couldn't go into your country and teach you how to do it. And lots of... Um, discussion in healthcare about that. It's a whole camp of people who say you shouldn't bring them into the States because they're never going to be able to do that. you got to work with them in their country to build it. Uh, and there's truth in that, obviously. And But initially, when no one had seen anything, to bring people in and for a week, two weeks, and teach them, share with them everything you knew, they then could take that back and start a program in their own country because wow. they had seen something, right? Mm -hmm. As the epidemic matured and there were people in countries with more experience, I don't think that was as necessary, but in that first phase, so we did that. And then um, one of the last projects I had um, was CDC funded and um, we were working in two countries, a whole team of us, and we would go in country. We'd yeah. go in two weeks at a time. You know, my kids were late high school age by then. And you would then work with their ministries of health and their governments to help them write the criteria to decide who gets it, to think about what is it going to mean is it feasible? Is it viable in your country? You know, you're not, you don't want to drop a, third, a first world solution into a third world country. Um, yeah. You have to listen to them again. Um, and so that's some of the evolution. I think I've gotten off target <laughs> to your question. I don't, but. I don't think so. I, I think you, you stayed right on it through the course of that. And I think it's a fascinating, fascinating transformation of taking something that has an impact and not just scaling it through sort of the United States, but also saying, Hey, how can we continue to do this work in other places too? I think it's, it's really, really powerful. How did you change as a person being able to kind of witness and be a part of this positive change? Cause I imagine you're seeing over the long term communities transform. Uh, you're seeing um, lives change for sure. I mean, that, that's a, that's a lifelong, um, uh, lifelong, I, I guess is disease, the correct word, um, that if you, if you're born with that, you're, you're dealing with. So to be able to stop that transmission is, is completely transformational. How did you change in seeing all of these transformations take place? It led me, um, to realize that I didn't know enough to do this work. Mm -hmm. And so I took myself back to get a doctorate in public health, yeah. um, went to Columbia, it was the backyard school, um, and really tried to um, understand how you bring about change to populations, essentially, right? Wow. Nursing, you, you know how to do an individual or a group, but how do you bring that about with populations? Um, 
And so getting that doctorate um, definitely broadened my thinking. Um, it, it helped me to realize that much of this will always be long term, um, that you're going to most likely take uh, one step forward and two steps back. And you got to learn to accept that mm. um, and keep at it and persevere with it. And again, I was fortunate to be traveling with with some people that had a lot of experience doing this around other things and really imparted that wisdom to me and would say, okay, just, you know, take a deep breath. (laughs) Um, We're going to get there. You just have to, you know, understand it's going to take time. And it also um, opened my eyes to how political the process is for distribution of resources. Yeah. Um, now, some people go and get undergraduate degrees in political science, and they know that maybe when they're in high school. But I hadn't really picked up on that um, until this work came about. And mm. I think that's the most dramatic change I saw in myself as a result of it, um, that I realized that just because something's not fair um, doesn't mean it won't happen, yeah. that there are always competing factors uh, but again, if you understand them, you can then work to achieve an outcome with some benefit, maybe not the mm-hmm. kind of benefit you wanted, um, certainly or hoped for, but that there is still a way to um, bring about this benefit, but it may come about slower yeah. um, and in a different way than you might have envisioned. But as long as you don't, um, you're not rigid in terms of how you expect things to go and you can be flexible and agile. So that's really, I think what I I would say, I learned that mid career, mid to late career. Mm. I think it's a beautiful link to learn is, is really just being able to see reality for what it is. And it sounds like you went and found more tools to help you understand the reality that you were facing to a greater degree and how to operate within that reality. Uh, with more efficiency. And I think that's just such a powerful thing. And I think the proof is in the the results that have been had. Um, it's, it's really cool. So I'd love to, to sort of shift and talk about your work in Hawaii because you've had, you've had quite the career in Hawaii as well. And um, I, I'd love to just sort of high level talk about how you've shifted from sort of being at the school of nursing there and to becoming uh, more involved in sort of the, the government programs there um, around nursing, around health, the healthy and ready to learn program. Some of those things I think are just really interesting. So could you walk us through sort of that journey over um, the time that you were there and how that sort of transformed into, into the work that you're doing today? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> it's a lot to cover, isn't it? As you said, fifteen Enough. years to yeah. fit succinctly into a story. Yeah. One thing people tell you when you move to Hawaii is, if you embrace Hawaii, Hawaii embraces you back. A lot mm. of people will go to Hawaii and expect it's going to be like Manhattan, or it's going to be like Idaho, or wherever they're coming from. And when it's not, they're sort of taken aback and um, 
then they miss those opportunities to understand and learn about the people in the state. And in many ways, the state is the future. It's incredibly diverse in terms of populations, mm-hmm. which it has been and is more so and will continue to be more so and can really be a guide for the rest of the country around, you know, how do we do this when we have no clear majority population, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. uh, white people are not in the majority and their Asians clearly are, but there are different types of Asians. Those communities are not monolithic. Um, We also have incredible income disparities. So we have some of the poorest people literally who come in from the Pacific islands and the Silicon Valley tech folks who can come in and buy half an island. Right. So you have that happening and we have urban, um, dense urban communities and incredibly rural communities um, that are lacking in healthcare services. From a healthcare provider's perspective, uh, physicians in particular, very hard to earn a living that is commiserate with your training there, partly because population is small. So 1.3 million over our islands is not a lot of people. So I came from a place where we had, I don't know, 8 million in the metro New York area. Yeah. It was a big shock to my system to realize we have all the same problems, but they're on a smaller scale and the resources to address them are, are smaller. But once I got into the school, I did what I call the immersion course in Hawaii. And people would laugh at me because they would say, you're going where? And I was like, well, <laughs> and I think that was my public health background. I'm not going to come in. And just take what I know. I need yeah. to understand what you know and what you want, right? Yeah. Um, and so it was a lot of what they call sometimes listening tours. But um, Oahu certainly is where most of the action and the people are. But Maui, Kauai, Big Island, most people see them as great places to vacation. And they are. But they're also service economies. And mm-hmm. so small permanent populations. Um and this, I think this will bring a chuckle to your face, but if you're living on Oahu and you make the effort to go to Maui to visit the community college there or the hospital, they are so gracious and they are just so thankful. And <laughs> I'm kind of like, really? Um, but so that's sort of the dynamic at the culture level that... Wow. Um, Oahu, you know, doesn't care about us. And meanwhile, for me, it's like wonderful, right? Half an hour on a plane, I'm in a beautiful hotel yeah. in Maui, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Meeting people and touring the island. And um, so, but I did all that um, and it really opened my eyes because I had no concept of what a critical access hospital is. Um, what happens when you can't keep the neurosurgeon because there's not enough population mm-hmm. and you're having to transport people. And I've talked to enough people in say, you know, Tennessee and Kentucky and places like that to know that you have exactly those same issues. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, we do. So we're not really that different. And then um, I really enjoyed the students. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just the best part of the job. They were so our program was competitive because lots of people want to be nurses because in a service economy, a job in healthcare gives you a good income and it's right guaranteed. So we took very um, accomplished students into the program and in limited numbers. And that 
that still is the most heartbreaking thing because I know there were people that would have been great nurses, but, and the state needed them. And yet we couldn't take them, but the students who came in were just hungry to learn. There's no other way to describe it. Um, They couldn't soak it up fast enough. Um, And then many of them had actually never left Oahu. Wow. Even to go to another Island. And so then as a, as a, a dean, as you think about how do you, you know, want to be sure that your class of students is diverse, you also want your faculty to be di- to be diverse. If some of these students are not going to leave the island, then it's important that the faculty has different experiences to bring to them mm. um, and <laughs> different genders, because nursing is mostly um female um it's it, yeah. in my time it was two percent male now it's up to maybe 10 15 percent male but we wow. were seeing 20 25 percent male in hawaii again wow. because yeah. it was a way for a, a, a man essentially to be able to support a family or live you know live a comfortable life uh so then you know it's all that thinking about how do you do that and one of my bosses every year we had to self-assess ourselves right and one of the things was you know on um diversity etc and so i'd always put in that my goal was to increase the number of male faculty and when i would meet with him he would just look at me like he (laughs) he didn't get it because he was getting the pressure of you got too many men you got to get more of course right Yep. So it took me a couple of years to explain to him how this made sense in my context. And, yep. and then he got it. But that was <laughs> the fun of the school. And then also um, being able to recruit great faculty. They, you know, some people um, come to Hawaii for um, either get very young people because it's an adventure or mm-hmm. you get empty nesters like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're able to recruit really dynamic people who also were very community focused and wanted to certainly improve their careers, but also to make a difference in community. And then looking at programs, um, realized, took me a little while too, but you can't be all things to all people. Yeah. And then how do you decide what it is you do and how do you balance need versus demand? Because there were specialties, for example, um, in those early years, you know, say 2010 or so, where people were saying, we need psychiatric mental health clinical specialists, nurse practitioners. Um, and we actually started to produce them, but nobody was hiring them. And that was uh, a lesson for me. Yeah. And then ultimately students didn't come into the program and we had to close it down at that mm. point. Um, midwifery would have loved to have done midwifery mm-hmm. again, not the capacity to do it well, mm. but we we basically um, did a couple things that I see as legacy. The first was um, what we call a graduate entry to nursing program. A lot of these individuals that I said previously couldn't get in, but they still wanted to do health and they went to college and they got degrees and other things. Um, And they had some moment in their lives that was transformative Mm -hmm. and they decided to be nurses. So we essentially built a program for them where they could take some prerequisite science courses, then come into this graduate program and complete it in one year. Whereas nursing is typically two to three years to get a bachelor's degree. 
these people would come in, they could come out with a master's degree, which wow. also opened career doors to them yeah. and had a great response. And that program continues to this day um, and has different exit points for students. Um, then we also started looking at how do we contribute to leadership development? Mm-hmm. The employers would say to us, we have great bedside nurses, but once we move them into management, it really doesn't always work out. Um, and that's probably true in all professions, right? Yeah. There's a, a point of care or delivery where you're great. And then people say, okay, time to promote you. So we started looking then at executive development and offering a program. So um, we do that now. Uh, and it's really getting people in and then ensuring they have the skill set and the degree to move up. Um, yeah. Healthcare is very, very unusual. Um, maybe science is the only other field I think about that's like this. But you can be an artist and you can go to college or not go to college, but it's your work that mm-hmm. makes you productive and it generates income for you. In healthcare, you got to have that bachelor's, you got to have that RN, you got to mm-hmm. have that MD, that PharmD, that physical therapy D people won't even look at you without that. And there's all kinds yeah. of good reasons for that, right? It protects mm-hmm. the public and et cetera. But um, so making sure that Hawaii people who wanted to stay in Hawaii had those opportunities then, and they weren't always competing with someone from the mainland. They didn't have to bring in what they call the traveling nurses, right? Or people who will come in and, um, they say that the window for knowing that you're going to make it in Hawaii is about two years. Mm. And if you've come and gone in two years, <laughs> then it wasn't for you. <laughs> wasn't for and you. if you make it past that two year point, and some people say three, then we've got you, we hooked you in. It's speaking to your soul and you're going to be here for a while. Um, yeah. so that was the, if you will, academic and scholarship piece of it. But because I always had this passion for practice. Mm -hmm. Um, As I started to understand the unmet needs in the community and that as a public health person, you recognize, and it's the data shows it, but the biggest factor in determining your health status is whether or not you graduated from high school. Mm. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. The more education you have, the more likely you are to be healthy or healthier. Wow. And if you Mm. think of it, you know, think of people like yourselves and others who sort of have a set income and think about your diet, can access the food you want, um, have a a stable living, et cetera. Um, So that kind of resonated with me. And then at the same time, I had heard, you know, that the Department of Health, which educates the pub, you know, all the public school students, runs the public schools. Um, excuse me, not Department of Health, Department of Education, mm-hmm. um, did not have school nurses. They had oh. what were called aides. All you had to be was a high school graduate. <clears throat> they would teach you CPR. They paid you minimum wage, and you were the health room person. And so, wow. if a child came into that health room with a complaint, called the parent up. The kid was out of school, couldn't come back till they had a note from the doctor. So, mm. no surprise that absenteeism rates were very high. Um, and as that 
department leadership in 2014 or so really had started to turn around, if you will, academics and experience some success with these kids, they realized that health was a huge issue and brought together a bunch of people um, to talk about it, you know, stakeholders from the community and health. And um, it was a great meeting. I was happy to be part of it. Um, And then the meeting broke up and I waited, you know, stayed around, talked to the chief of staff for the superintendent and said, well, you know, whatever you do, you know, nursing school, we're a state agency like you. We want our students to be prepared when they come to the university, whatever I can do. Uh, And I got a call about a week later and they basically said, you want to go to Cincinnati for a week? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? <laughs> well, it turned out that I was the only one who stayed around. So, oh. and offered. And so they yeah. said, we're doing this study tour. There are these some really neat health programs. There's this national conference of community schools in um, Cincinnati, and they're going to be showing off how they address health. I was like, Oh, yeah, sure. You know, um, that's the beauty of being a dean. You have a lot of flexibility, right? Sure, yeah. And um, so I went and then I got to meet the superintendent. There was only about eight or 10 of us and we stayed at the same hotel and she had brought in some of her um, district superintendents and a couple principals. And we just started talking. And then um, on the plane on the way back, they said, well, what, what do you think you could do for us? And we talked about it um, and they had ideas and that's how the program started. Wow. Very little money. They had, um, they found about five, $600,000. We sat down together. They talked to me about what, what are called the title one schools, which are basically um, schools where more than 40% of the kids are eligible for free or reduced lunches. Mm-hmm. Right. It's also a surrogate marker for kids who are on Medicaid, mm-hmm. um, right? They yep. go together. And um, highest absentee rates in those schools as well. Yeah. So these people that they had brought then to Cincinnati were people who were um, ready for success. I learned a whole new jargon, but um, <laughs> they were ready to succeed um, and were willing to take a risk on something new. and. Mm. And then we thought, well, how, you know, how are we going to do this? And um, I decided that we needed master's prepared nurses and nurse practitioners because these individuals were going to be, you know, edge runners. They were going to be the only one in that setting. People were going to look to them for guidance. And so we started off with four nurses, yeah. uh, one on Hawaii, three on um, uh, Oahu. And we just, every school we went into, we did an assessment. Um, we got to know principals. And then we used this, what I think of as a design think process. I don't use that word when I talk to people in the program. Sure. But essentially, the schools, I always felt, had to be the senior partner. So mm-hmm. this was a partnership between the university nursing school with the Department of Education, but the goal was really to improve academic success mm-hmm. and health was one way to get there. If you could improve health, you were ready to learn. You were in your seat. And then the Department of Education and the teachers could take over. But if you weren't in that seat and you're you know, not there or you were there and your tooth hurt, mm-hmm. right, you, you couldn't focus on learning or you were hungry, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and so we really listened to those principles and 
Um, we did not go in saying, okay, we got it. We know there's national guidelines. Every child in such and such a grade should have this and that done, um, which is what happens in, in a fair number of settings. We said to the principals, what's your biggest health problem? What's consuming your time? Um, and then we sent assessments out to parents via the schools, right? What same question for you? And then we were able to see what the, what the needs were. And um, the biggest need in most of the schools that they wanted addressed was lice. They had head mm. lice. Big problem everywhere, right? Regardless yeah. of sociodemographics these mm-hmm. days. Um, so then it became, how do we treat the ukus, as we call them, and, you know, keep the kids in school? And then once we built that confidence with those schools that they knew we were there. Um, there was still some hesitation because lots of programs come and go in schools. Right. Yeah. And like principal took me through her school one time and she was like, here's this person, that person, I don't know who they are. I don't know what they do. They were just, I was just told to give them an office, but mm-hmm. by getting the principal to buy in by working with the teachers, um, then you created a, um, a role that was embedded in the school, right? It was part yeah. of the school community. And um, so then it went from there and the superintendent would bring me in, talk to her leadership group and each year, you know, where we're with the program. But what really helped it um, take off was principals talking to other principals and superintendents wow. talking to other superintendents and going like, you know what, I don't know how I, we did it without this or look at, you know, this happened and, you know, the nurse was there. And I mean, with the dramatic cases where literally, you know, they saved a life, something happened on the athletic field or someone had an acute allergic reaction, but it was more um, getting the kids in the seats. And then once you identify the needs they have, then you're in a position to build services onto that. And so we went from that in 2014 growing every year. Um, Again, that marketing, as I call it, advocacy. Once we had some success with it, we all, I always believe um, when you do a program, you collect the data, you analyze it, and you demonstrate impact. Um, And once you can do that, and then you, you close the loop back to the people who gave you the money, you, then they're, they get it. And they realize that you're someone that's worth investing in and people mm. like to hitch their wagon to a star. Right. Yeah. Um, and so as we did that each year, more money would come. And then I guess about four or five years into it, maybe and I'm terrible with dates, but um, so maybe around 19, 2000, 2019, maybe the state legislators, um, one of the ones we had who chaired the finance committee went, going back to her every year, every year. And one year she said, you know what? I'm just putting you in the Department of Education budget if it's okay with them. And I would always go with the superintendent. I never went by myself. They had to understand, right? Yep. Um, Because DOEs take a lot of criticism. Uh, Mm -hmm. So she created a line item in their budget. She put money in there. And every year that money was there as core funding. And then with that, we, we expanded. And then... The other advantage of a nursing school versus contracting with a, you know, for-profit or not-for-profit is we're also so committed to education and to learning that we looked for opportunities to get funding when we had needs. Mm. 
of a fabulous faculty person who, who actually took over for me as I moved into retirement, whose passion was oral health in children. Mm. And she just couldn't believe how bad the teeth were. Um, mm. And the data in Hawaii, worst caries in the country. We beat states in the South. Um, yeah. The state spends more money on restoration than any other state. So she started thinking about sealants. These are little plastic coatings, very easy to apply. Mm-hmm. We had no sealant program. And when they looked at the data, even kids with insurance weren't getting their sealants. But the Medicaid oh, wow. kids were definitely not getting them. So we went, we approached the major funder, Hawaii Dental Services, the insurer, um, who was paying all this money for restoration, right? And said, what do you think about if we could pull off something like this? And little bit of money, little bit of money, she came up with a model using a dental hygienist, screenings at the school, sealants applied at the school, um, dentists to come in because in our state, dental hygienists can't do this on their own. Other states they can, but in Hawaii, they have to show it to the dentist and they have to mm-hmm. nod their head and say, okay. Um, and so now there's this program that's on three islands. Um, thousands and thousands of kids are getting screened every year. They're getting sealants wow. on. And it also means that they're in school because they're not getting the cavities, yeah. right? So, and academic success is improved. And that's um, how that program, I think, has become successful. And now people who are initially resistant to us for all kinds of different reasons are coming and saying, well, what about, you know, and then obviously during COVID, it was, oh, thank God we have these nurses. They were able to put additional money in. The team scaled up big time and was able to support the schools and help them write procedures, do testing on site, both teachers and kids. Um, And DOE was so happy with it that the federal funding goes away next year, but they're committed to finding the funding to keep the program intact. And then using that sort of design thinking, people have changed the model now. So, um, nationally, CDC, Academy of Pediatrics are like, we don't have enough school nurses. Every school should have a nurse. I thought like that in the beginning. But as we learned, we found out, actually, no, you probably don't need a nurse in every school. You do need a health person who is well-trained and supervised. And if you can do telehealth and that person has someone that they can contact Wow, you're in a position because some schools have a hundred kids and other schools yeah. have 3000 kids. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, this just happened this past year, the uh, program administrator was really thinking about it and she's come up with a model to how do you identify what the risk is in schools? So then you can allocate and it's things like absentee rates and, and title one and, you know, and then you, she grades them into low, medium, high risk. Then you allocate. So one nurse may get two nurse, uh, two school, and one school may get two nurses, and another school may share with it, right? And then big, big uh, movement into telehealth. She was very early mm-hmm. on. And I have to say, um, we actually looked to your University of Tennessee at Knoxville Nursing School has oh, done wow. some of that. They were one of the first people, one of their faculty, and so we, we looked at that and then were able to purchase some equipment. And so virtual exams can be done in a health room with a health aide. 
and the APRN, the nurse practitioner, is, you know, 50 miles away, but can see the ear, the throat, listen to the heart, um, wow. do what needs to be done for the, for the child. So we've gone into that in a big way. And then mental health always was an issue, and COVID mm-hmm. has exacerbated it. Yeah. So program again, how do we help? APRNs with certification in in mental health, pediatric mental health, Mm. setting up again a system so you can screen in the schools with iPads and then kids who screen positive then get a phone call, if you will, virtual call with the nurse practitioner who then triages. Does this child need the ER right now? And we have had to send some kids to the hospital with that ER or can they do a referral? And then most recently, our largest um, healthcare provider, this is literally signed off on it a couple weeks ago is now funding us to expand that program because they see the benefit. They want to be linked to the schools, part of their mission, but they also will minimize the mental health impact on their emergency rooms and on their providers who are in short supply if you can have those early primary interventions before conditions worsen. So Man. as you can tell, it's it's a fun project and you know I'm transitioning out of it because it's that time in my life, but I'm just so delighted that the people who have stepped up are, are just amazing and innovative and go to the mat all the time for the kids. It's just great. Yeah. It's hard to like the, the list of things that you just sort of shared is, is absolutely staggering. And so I, I, I'd be hard to imagine how that program and how that entire state would look had you not made the decision to move there and to share your gifts um, with, with the department of education and with the, the college there. So it's, it's very, inspiring to me to hear the impact that you've been able to make in Hawaii and the United States and the world. It's just, it's such an honor to be talking to you today. So thank you for the time before we get too much further. I I just want to thank you for making time to share this story today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Brett. As you can tell, I love to talk about it. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like we could, we could probably talk for hours more, but I do want to respect your time as well. Um, so if you've got time for one more question, um, I think I'm, I'd just like to sort of wrap up with this one today, which is um, sort of in line with your entire idea of paying it forward and helping ready the next generation, which is, which is this, if, there's a young person who wants to do something really big in the world. They want to have a big impact, something similar to what you've done with your life, but they don't know where to start. Where would you tell them to begin? There are three things that any person needs as they start to think about uh, leaving high school. Right. And this is, I didn't discover this myself. It's, it's come around very different ways, but one, you have to have something that you enjoy, right? Mm. It has to be fun. It can't feel like it's work. The second thing is it has to compensate you to live the life you want to live. Yeah. Right. Um, and that, you know, it requires some thinking about what is it you, you know, it's not the, it's what do you want your life to look like in 10 years economically, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is you wanted to make a difference for society. Mm. 
Um, and that doesn't mean you go into healthcare. That means you could be in banking, but you're fundraising or you got a team that goes out and paints a, a shelter on a weekend. Um, but if you can look at those three things, um, any young person is going to find their place. Um, mm. I think that's really well said. Well, Mary, where can people find you? Are, are you on social media or where's a good place if people, if people want to reach out, you know, where's the best place for them to get in touch with you if they want to start a similar program or they have questions uh, regarding the, the things that you're trying out there in Hawaii and sort of piloting there? Sure. Um, the best thing would be to go to the website for the School of Nursing there and Perfect. has a very simple address, nursing.hawaii.edu. And then, Easy enough. Yeah. And then Hawaii Keiki has its own um, subsite on there that talks about things and has contact information. So that will be the best place for anybody who wants to learn more about this. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for your time today for sharing so much. We may have to do a part two at some point because I feel like we, we barely scratched the surface of some of the cool things that you've been able to do in the world. But Mary, thank you again for your time today and um, for all that you've been able to share with us. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Brett. Thank you for your interest too. Of course. Yeah. You've got an incredible story and I, I can't wait to share it with the world. All right. righty. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap. Mary, I just wanted to take one more moment to thank you for being on today's show and for being so willing to share your story and all the lessons that you've learned along your journey. I really enjoyed today's show and I know it means a lot to our audience as well. So thank you for that. And thanks to each of you who are here listening and who took the time to tune in today to hear Mary's story. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please tap that five-star review button it only takes a few seconds for you to do that. And it makes such a tremendous difference in our show's visibility to people who are searching for us or to people who are trying to find a new podcast to listen to. So if you could, if you're enjoying the show, take just a few seconds before you close out your app and hit the five-star button, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're tuning in. One big final thank you to Tower Community Bank for putting on today's show and for providing everything we need to make today's show happen. If you are enjoying the impact code, a great way to support and make sure that we can continue doing the show is by going to towercommunitybank.com and checking us out. That's all that we have for today. We'll see you back here for the next episode of The Impact Code. Bye.